President Trump's border wall is extremely effective. We'll get to that coming up. Trump's Remain in Mexico policy will be safe from the courts, from being overturned by the courts for some time. All of that is coming up. Do not count out Bernie Sanders yet. Don't discount Bernie Sanders. That's exactly what the media wants us to do. The man has been quite resilient. The man has been literally wrecked, been a wrecking ball to the Democrat establishment for years. And the party is quite socialist and still quite divided. This is not over yet. I understand that the, it's a long shot. But Joe Biden, remember, he still needs a thousand more delegates before he becomes the nominee. What if something happens in the next few weeks? They have weeks to go before Biden can even reach the threshold mathematically. And what if Biden's health declines in the next three weeks or something along those lines? So much can haven't we seen if there's one thing we have learned in all these months, this roller coaster of a Democrat primary is that anything can happen. But the media, they want us to to, to count out Bernie. Oh, Bernie's it's over. He doesn't have a path to 1990 because Biden has 130 more delegates than Bernie Sanders. Now, look, the momentum has shifted in Biden's favor a great deal. He's getting all these endorsements and you know, he certainly is ahead in the polls. But like I said, things the unexpected can happen. Why is the media declaring Biden the winner? Because they're hoping that socialist voters will stay home. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The media says Biden's the front runner. Biden's going to win. They're basically saying to Bernie Sanders voters, just don't even bother. Don't even bother. It's, 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 it's a health risk now to go out and vote. So why would you go out and vote? By the way, the real reason that, now but Biden did have a big night last night. Even Ocasio-Cortez said it was a tough night for her candidate, her socialist candidate, Bernie Sanders. The real reason that Hillary did not endorse Joe Biden, the real why did Hillary, we told you she's been blasting Bernie Sanders. The other night she said that Bernie Sanders, he would not be the strongest candidate against Trump. Well, there's pretty much only one other candidate other than Tulsi. Hillary Clinton doesn't like Tulsi Gabbard either, by the way. So why did Hillary not endorse Biden? And here's the real answer. She wants to be the nominee. Hillary is hoping that Biden does not get the nomination, that this goes down to being a brokered convention. That That is Hillary's hope because she thinks that she's going to swoop in and she's going to say, look at Biden, look at Bernie, weak candidates, look at Biden, look at his age. Hillary, even though she's not young, but she's younger than Joe Biden. So she's actually, Michael Goodwin said this, he said everything that Hillary does strategically is about Hillary. And there's no question the Clintons, whatever they move they make, it is with one calculation in mind, what's best for the Clintons? And Hillary goes and she blasts Bernie, but then she does not endorse Biden. Why would you not endorse Joe Biden? Because she's hoping a broker convention happens. And at that point, who's the best candidate? Biden's a terrible candidate. Pick me, Hillary. I, I, I mean, as though Hillary's a decent candidate. Look, look at the bloodbath that happened back in 2016 between her and Trump. But that's your reason. Now, big primary yesterday. They're calling it mini Super Tuesday. Biden won big in... Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, and Idaho, and now Washington State is neck and neck. So even if Biden loses there, it's really close. And uh, I guess Sanders only took, what, South Dakota, I believe. They're saying that Biden is unstoppable. They're saying we have our nominee. Again, I'm very reluctant. At this point, I'd be surprised if Bernie Sanders pulls it off, but nothing would shock me. And and, And again, when the media says, oh, this is it, you know, Biden is the presumptive nominee, Bernie Sanders, count him out. And Bernie held this press conference today and he announced that he's staying in the race and, and, and they have a debate coming up on Sunday in Arizona. But again, the reason that, that the media is doing that, make no mistake, is because they're trying to actually make it happen. Now, next Tuesday, you have big primaries, Arizona, Florida, Illinois, 
and Ohio. Now, Michigan is a really interesting case study because it shows you the difference in Bernie Sanders between 2016 and right now. And uh, because Bernie won, beat Hillary in Michigan, which was a big upset back in 2016, and yet he lost to Biden by a dramatic, by a significant margin in Michigan this time around. So what changed between 2016 and now? Well, Hillary Clinton was a very weak candidate, of course. She had so many scandals, you know, with Benghazi and the email servers. And, you know, not to mention, remember, there was a movement. I mean, the, the, the economy was not nearly as good as it is now. It was, it was moving in the right direction, but much weaker than it is, than it is now. So you have to believe. Remember, a lot of working class people, they, they wanted Bernie Sanders because they, to them, socialism was the only solution because, you know, they felt like they were getting a raw deal. Well, maybe now, thanks to Trump, the economy is so much better. Maybe a lot of those Bernie Sanders voters don't feel the same kind of urgency. Maybe they're not supporting Bernie anymore. But uh, uh, Hillary was a weak candidate. Is Biden a stronger candidate than Hillary was in 2016? I, maybe. And the other thing is Bernie Sanders is much more under the microscope now. Remember, he's been exposed to socialist programs and the fact that they're going to be astronomically high priced. They're going to probably bankrupt the country. And the fact that he admits that he doesn't know how much they're going to cost and he's going to raise middle class taxes and it's going to cost you know, $60 trillion at best over 10 years, th those things have been exposed. In 2016, nobody was talking about that. Now, Sunday, as I said, there's a debate. The debate will not have a live audience, they've announced, the DNC, because of fears of the coronavirus, which is interesting. It'll affect the dynamics, of course. It's different when you have an audience and you have applause versus just two candidates sitting there, you know, kind of in silence. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Now, the Bernie Sanders campaign has denounced statements made by an imam. There was an imam who introduced Bernie Sanders at a rally in Michigan this past weekend. Michigan, of course, has a heavily Muslim population. And this imam, it turns out, is a radical Islamist, Imam Sayed Hassan Al-Kazwini. Back in 2015, he said that ISIS is somehow connected to Israel. That's his words. ISIS, quote, somehow is connected to Israel. This is the man that introduced Bernie Sanders. Should we be surprised? Bernie Sanders, who is supported by uh, Ocasio-Cortez and, and by Rashida Tlaib and, of course, by Elon Omar, these vicious pro-Palestinian, pro-terrorist congresswomen, these radical extreme congresswomen. So, and Bernie Sanders calls Israel a racist and he's pro-BDS. So why is anybody surprised that he has a radical Islamic imam introducing him at a rally? And then, of course, these these comments surface, and he's made other other very uh, controversial, radical comments in the past. So Bernie Sanders has disavowed and denounced those statements. Very good. That's very helpful. And, and is the media reporting it? Not much. Um, all right, here's an update on the coronavirus. And look, I feel that it's my responsibility. I think you know that I'm very uncomfortable discussing anything health-related uh, simply because you know, I, obviously, I have no expertise on it. I, I do read a lot, and I try to research, and I try to bring you the best facts that I can manage to obtain. But I, I, I very much am reluctant, you know, to mislead anybody in any kind of in either direction, making somebody either panic too much or making somebody, you know, not cautious enough. I, I, that that is my fear. You know, with that said, I kind of have a responsibility here to at least report in in so far as it does relate to politics, the political realm. So President Trump, he's being extremely aggressive, and, and his task force, led by Pence, they're being very aggressive, very on top of this. There was an issue with the tests, and they're getting a lot of flack for that because there was some kind of flaw in the tests for a few weeks, and then, and then there was a delay because they had to, I guess, 
create new tests. And, you know, a lot of critics are saying, well, look, where have you been waking up? You know, we've known basically since early January. So it's been more than two months that this has already been an epidemic in China. And they've known that at least it was a possibility of it spreading to the United States. So you got to have, have tests ready. I guess there are other countries where they were literally testing 100,000, maybe 200,000 people a day. Um where maybe South Korea, I don't know, Governor Andrew Cuomo has been criticizing the federal government saying that they simply have to make tests readily available. People right now, if somebody, you know, just thought that they might have it, right, but they don't have any really reason to believe it other than symptoms, they're probably not going to get tested because there are a limited number of tests, so they're limiting it to people who there's some sort of reasonable suspicion they were in contact with somebody or they were in the, 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 the proximity or something like that. So there is this criticism about them not having enough tests, but it does seem now they're saying millions of tests are available. So it does seem that they're very much on top of that. Um, and I believe Bill Gates, they say, is working on developing a home test kit that people will be able to buy. Now, even if it's not 100% accurate, it certainly would be helpful. Now, But again, there is this controversy. Cuomo says very few people have been tested. The federal government says there's millions of tests available. So... Not clear. Now, as far as the actual data, still nobody knows the data. Be and they're saying that. They're, they're, I give them credit. They're mostly being honest about that, the officials dealing with this in the United States, because, you know, again, it's still, I guess you'd call it in a, at a relatively early phase. And the only place where it's more of an advanced stage is China. And we have no idea. We have, we have no idea what how many people really do have the virus in China or anywhere else in the world. You know, what do they know? So they, they can't calculate the death rate because let's say for argument's sake right now, you know, they look at the, the rate in the United States, right, which is way too small a sample anyway. But let's just say, what if there's another 50,000 people in the United States who are walking around with it but are asymptomatic? That, unless you know how many people have it without having any symptoms, those people are not getting tested. You, you literally have to test I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people, I would think, almost randomly to have a good idea of how many people actually have it. So if they don't know how many people have it, they can't figure out the death rate. They can know the maximum death rate because if they know how many people died um, total, you know, so and, and they know, uh, you know, how many people they are aware of who have the disease. So you would think the death rate can't be higher than that, but it could potentially be much, much lower at the same time. There are experts who are suggesting that maybe the death rate is significantly higher than the death rate from the flu. And obviously, that's very frightening. They know that elderly people get hit the hardest, obviously. They know that people with underlying health conditions are hit the hardest. At the same time, they don't know necessarily. I'm not, they don't necessarily know which underlying conditions are the most high risk. You know, So they're talking about diabetes, and they're talking about people with heart problems, people obviously lung issues, asthma. And, and then they're talking about things like high blood pressure, you know, which is relatively common. And some people, their high blood pressure is under control. Some people, it's not. So then the question is, which are the risk factors, the underlying health conditions people need to be most concerned about? They know that having an underlying health condition is more of a concern than somebody who's completely healthy, but they don't know how that really, how the details, or at least they have not shared the details of that. So that's something to keep in mind. Kids, kids are relatively safe. Even if they do get the disease, it's usually mild. Some of them don't get it or don't get symptoms. And, uh, you know, very, very few, if any, children, you know, get really, really sick from it, which is wonderful. And that's that's very different than, let's say, the flu. The flu does tend to hit kids pretty hard. You know, so they are projecting that a massive amount of people will develop this illness at some point, you know, but at the same time, and it's very contagious, you know, but at the same time, humans develop more of an immunity as these things last longer. So that's also something 
to keep in mind. Now, right now, you would think is the people are the most susceptible because of you know the, the not having developed an immunity because the virus is so new. So now the government here's the here's the strategy right now is prevent large gatherings, prevent travel as much as possible, prevent cruises and those types of things. And their thinking is that even though, you know, you would think that sooner or later it'll keep spreading, uh, and there might be outside factors, you know, like the weather changes, et cetera, but let's just even say it keeps spreading if they contain it and they prevent the spread over, so it takes a longer time to spread because there are not large gatherings, so it can't really spread very quickly, the more of a chance they have to develop a treatment to develop a vaccine. You know, so again, they really don't know what to expect, but they're learning, I would say, relatively quickly. And of course, they're basing things on the experience from past epidemics like this. And I certainly don't blame anybody who's overly cautious and says, listen, I'm going to avoid certain things that maybe not everybody's avoiding. Uh, I certainly do not blame you one bit. I want to be very clear, erring on the side of caution. Everybody has to make their own decision because there becomes a point where, you know, you can really not be functioning too much because you're sort of uh, reacting, let's say, very very cautiously. Now, do I blame anybody for doing that? I certainly do not, because if this is something to be concerned. At the same time, are some people going to say, listen, you know, at this point, it's still very, very low odds. And at this point, it's still somebody's healthy, they're young, you know, so I, I don't know, you know, but that's something very important to keep in mind. Now, the WHO, the World Health Organization, has labeled the coronavirus a pandemic. I believe the last pandemic, labeled pandemic, was the H1N1 virus, otherwise known as the swine flu, which was dangerous, but it wasn't. It turns out to not really be that bad. And it turns out that you know, it was the, the fear of what the swine flu would become was much, much worse than the actual reality. The actual data ended up showing the way things actually played out, which that's a good thing. You know, I do believe that right now the numbers are worse than they were for the H1N1 virus. But the WHO, they're saying that labeling the pandemic, and of course that sounds all, you know, frightening and ominous, and it certainly, I'm not being cynical there, you should very much take it seriously, but it's not going to change anything practically, labeling the pandemic. It doesn't trigger any kind of specific official actions, but it does underscore the seriousness. And, you know, they want people to be very, very cautious. And they're doing this because of the level of spread and the level of severity. WHO Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus, he said that in the past two weeks, the number of cases outside of China has increased by 13-fold, and the number of countries that have the coronavirus have tripled. So because of the level of spread, the level of severity, they are um, now labeling it a pandemic. There are 118,000 cases in 114 countries. 4,291 people have died. I believe 31 people in the United States have died. Just over 1,000 cases in the United States. Now, meanwhile, I, I can't stand the silly things, and I have to speak out against this. There's an athlete, a, a former basketball player, who, who's upset they're considering not having fans. They're considering not having fans in attendance, not having an audience in attendance, just like what they're doing with the debate, right? So they're considering that for something called the NCAA basketball tournament. There's this, I guess, college basketball tournament that I guess people who are followers of college basketball, this is like the big highlight of the year. Well, They'll call it March Madness where they'll have these college basketball teams uh, have this tournament, I guess, to decide who the champion is, and they're considering not allowing fans to attend the tournament. At least, I guess, what remains of the tournament. So there's this former Hall of Fa this Hall of Fame former player with the National Basketball Association, Charles Barkley. He says it would be a travesty if the NCAA does not allow fans to attend 
the tournament because of the coronavirus. And what a ridiculous, what an absolutely silly, absurd, ridiculous thing for this person to say. Quote, other than the Olympics, March Madness is the greatest thing I've ever experienced. That's pretty sad right there. The last few years we have been covering March Madness. It would be a travesty if the fans were not there. We have been covering, I don't know, I guess he works for some kind of media outlet or whatever. But if it would be a travesty, I mean, like, hello, we're talking about public health and you're annoyed because fans won't be able to appreciate the sporting event in person. So, so I mean, we're trying to, to protect people, save lives. And, you know, this is a very, very serious issue, obviously, serious health issue, public health concern, and people are dying. But it would be a travesty because he wants there to be fans allowed to attend. I mean, what a ridiculous thing to say. And I hope people call him out on this. Okay, in other news, the Supreme Court has ruled that President Trump's Remain in Mexico policy will remain in place, will get to uh, keep stay active while it goes through the appeals courts while it goes through the appeals process and it may eventually get to the supreme court and this is huge this is absolutely huge it should not be understated how big a deal this is because last week the ninth the liberal ninth circuit court it's not as liberal but it's still pretty liberal thanks to trump it's less liberal they ruled that it's that it's illegal the remain in mexico policy is illegal what the logic is for that is just beyond me i mean how is it illegal you have these asylum seekers who are gaming taking advantage of a very broken system that Democrats and Congress refuse to fix. Trump get, says, "All right, fine. You want a, asylum? We'll get. We'll give you. We'll go, we'll let you apply for asylum. We'll let you go through the asylum process. You're staying in Mexico and waiting there, you know, while we process you instead of catch and release, right? And Trump has eliminated catch and release mainly thanks to this policy. So, meanwhile, this the the, the lower court, the Ninth Circuit, they uh, ruled it illegal and they. It suspended. They suspended the program. They've issued an injunction or whatever uh, the technicalities are to suspend the program, but they gave it a week and Trump appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says that, no, it can remain in place. We're not suspending it. And this is a tactic that these lower liberal courts use against Trump uh, all the time is they issue these injunctions and then they prevent Trump from putting these policies into place, the border wall with the emergency funding and all the other things. Uh, the, the travel ban they did this, you know, they, they, this is what they do is they, they, they basically control Trump's policies just based on a couple of judges, their liberal, uh, perspectives, right? So, so the Supreme Court ruled eight to one, only Justice Sotomayor dissented on this, which is interesting. I mean, she obviously is Hispanic and she was the only dissenter. So it was an eight to one ruling victory for Trump in the Supreme Court. And so this is going to remain in place now. You know, it takes months and months. I'm guessing that it, it won't really be determined what the outcome is of the reign of Mexico until after November. So this is one of Trump's signature border achievements, and now it's going to be remaining in place, I suspect, until November. That's huge. Meanwhile, the new Border Patrol chief, Rodney Scott, he says the border the border wall that Trump built, it, where it's already built, which is 131 miles of wall, it's preventing 90% of illegal crossing. I mean, hello? Like, why is this even news? There's a wall. People get across the border. You place a wall there, now they cannot get across the border. Anyway, but everybody's very excited about this in the Trump administration, obviously. 90% of border crossing now is effective. Without a wall, it, it's only 10%. Without a wall, the fact that there's a border there does virtually nothing because in spots where there's a lot of rampant crossing, that means humans going sneaking across. That means drug trafficking, drug smuggling. Uh, it's been 10% that they've been able to prevent it from getting across because the border is so impossible to 
to, to, to protect from, to guard, which is why Trump uh, is building this wall, obviously, why build the wall was like his like number one promise as, as when he campaigned. Anyway, so they have now have data that it's 90% effective, both humans and cars. So, for example, in the San Diego area, uh, Rodney Scott says the wall has basically ended illegal crossings of both humans and cars in San Diego. San Diego it used to be rampant. And that means that we need less agents, fewer Border Patrol agents, which is saving a ton of money. San Diego needs 150 fewer border agents, which saves $28 million in salaries and benefits. So drug cartels, now the wall is so effective that drug cartels have had to change their tactics. They're building tunnels to try to sneak across, and they're trying to place drugs on vehicles that are passing through border entry points where they obviously get inspected. So that's not nearly as effective. So this wall is so effective that the drug cartels now have to change, shift their strategy, and it's not working because they're being forced basically to either dig a tunnel or to go through through a legal border entry point, send the drugs that way, and that's not effective. So anyway, the update here on the border wall, it's extremely effective, 131 miles complete, 208 miles under construction, 414 miles of wall are in pre-construction. So, and that is without, basically with zero help from Congress. They gave a few bucks, but almost no help whatsoever from Congress. A FISA judge, you know, we told you about this FISA judge, James Boesberg, who uh, he, he he ruled a couple of weeks ago that anybody who's being investigated under Spygate, anyone being investigated for the corrupt Carter Page, you know, uh, surveillance, spying, as A.G. Barr called it, they are, are not allowed to present any, to be involved at all in the FISA application process right now. And they're trying to really revamp that process. James Boesberg, so he's the actual new chief just, judge of FISA. In that ruling, he said very strong words, basically saying that that the FBI misled the FISA court. Quote, there is little doubt that the government breached its duty of candor to the court with respect to those applications. So what's he saying? They lied. They misled because you know, a lot of people are trying to whitewash the IG report about about the FISA spygate. As a well, it was they were violations, there were omissions. No, 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 no. They deliberately misled the court. And it's very important for a judge to actually put that in writing is huge because we know this is exactly what happened. And the and the, one of the reasons that's so significant is because in the next few days they're trying to pass, you know, to renew the FISA Act, to, to re- renew the bill, the legislation that allows FISA to remain, this FISA court. Anytime there's surveillance uh, it within the United States, it has to go through this FISA court. Even if they're surveilling, even if they're spying on a foreigner, but if it's within the United States, it needs to go through the FISA court. And it's very controversial because a lot of people, Republicans and Democrats, believe that it's it jeopardizes civil liberties of Americans. And look at Trump and, and, and Spygate and Carter Page and need we say more, right? So here's what's really interesting. So now A.G. Barr, he actually, he actually has endorsed. They, they have all sorts of reforms they want to do. When they pass this bill, they don't want to just pass it as is. They want to do all sorts of things to protect from anything like the Carter Page uh, scandal ever happening again and Comey and all that abuse. So, uh, but but what's interesting is it turns out there's an op-ed of the Washington Examiner. Two men were really responsible in 2005. They already at that point wanted to reform the FISA process because they were worried that it was endangering Americans, putting them at risk of being spied on by their own government. And two DOJ officials, two top DOJ officials, assured Congress that, no, you don't have to reform FISA. It's good the way it is, and we're not going to spy on anybody uh, anybody innocent, any innocent Americans. Guess who those two people were? I, I wonder if you'll be shocked here. James Comey and 
Bob Mueller, yes, James Comey and Bob Mueller, they assured Congress that no, no one's ever going to take advantage of the FISA process of the spying, of the warrants to spy on U.S. citizens to hurt anybody. That's never going to happen. And, and sure enough, look, look at the damage they did to Trump using FISA, both Comey and Bob Mueller. Mueller was after the fact, but he's just as guilty as all the rest of them. So this is amazing. This is uh, somebody who was a, I believe, congressional advisor wrote this op-ed Quote, I was one of very few people in the room when Comey represented that U.S. citizens need not worry about being surveilled and that internal safeguards were su sufficient. Mueller took a similar position, reassuring us that privacy concerns were overstated and a clean reauthorization was vital. Clean reauthorization means they reauthorized FISA at that point without making any amendments, without making any reforms. The op-ed says, quote, at best they were wrong. At worst, they deceived Congress and the public. Thanks to the work of the inspector general, we now know of substantial abuses of the FISA warrant process. This week, Congress will again be asked to reauthorize the same FISA tools. President Trump would be justified to demand under the threat of veto that the mistakes of history do not repeat and that Congress make vital changes to FISA to ensure greater accountability. And one thing that he talks about here is something called Section 215, which essentially you know, talks about uh, what, what the, the level of evidence needed to obtain a secret warrant to spy. They, they can... Uh, they can require third parties, such as uh, phone companies, internet providers, other online platforms, to turn over any records as long as it's relevant to an investigation. And they cannot reauthorize this section relevant to an investigation. It gives them these widespread powers, which can easily be abused as long as it's relevant. So the Sabed is saying it shouldn't just be enough to just be relevant. It has to be probable cause. You have to have a reason for suspicion. Once it's relevant to an investigation, that, that gives them these broad sweeping powers to just subpoena almost any records that they want from these third parties, these phone companies and internet providers. So there's no reason in the world that should be allowed to happen. Uh, a court has ruled that Congress has a right, speaking of Mueller, to, to read grand jury testimony from the Mueller probe. This has been an ongoing battle. Democrats have been desperate to get their hands on Mueller's records of grand jury testimony. And a court has ruled that Congress does have a right. Now, Trump has appealed this ruling, but the court says that Congress has a right to see, uh, I guess, transcripts of the um, grand jury testimony from the Mueller probe. And the logic is it's actually one Clinton. It was a two-to-one ruling. One Clinton appointee, one Bush appointee, both ruled in favor that Congress has a right. There was a Trump appointee on the court who dissented, said that Congress does not have the right. And essentially what the reasoning here is, they say since Mueller did not issue it, if Mueller had issued a conclusion and said, listen, Trump is totally exonerated, or if uh, Mueller had said Trump is guilty, charge him, either of those, then maybe it would be a different outcome. They say since Mueller left it open-ended and conclusive, at least the obstruction, not sure about the, I, I think he pretty, pretty clearly, not I think, he cl clearly exonerated Trump on collusion, but the obstruction charge, Mueller left open-ended, so therefore Congress has a right because they need to make a determination because they don't have Mueller indicating in either direction. That's their logic, and uh, the dissenter said uh, they already impeached Trump. You know, like th this request, this lawsuit was filed way before Trump was impeached. He's already been impeached. He's already been acquitted. So, like, I, I guess, can we at least hear from Congress now and give us some kind of, you know, basis for after you've impeached the man and he's been acquitted for needing to see this grand jury testimony? It's pretty irrelevant at this point. Uh, now, Rand Paul voted against the coronavirus funding bill, which funded 8.3 
billion dollars. And look, Rand Paul, he, he votes against any spending bills. He'll get a lot of flack for this. And you could tell me that this is controversial. Now, the argument's going to be, well, Rand Paul, he knew that it would go through. But you wonder with a guy like Rand Paul, even if he was the deciding vote, and his logic, I just want to tell you his logic, he certainly believes that this funding should go through, but he says that what's going to happen? They don't actually allocate where the funds are going to come from. The, the, the bill doesn't specify, all right, here's going to be our source of funding. It's just we have to fund the money. Well, it's not in the budget. So essentially, they're going to borrow the money. It's going to add to the debt. They're going to borrow it from China. That's what that, that's what they always do with this kind of thing. So Paul says, why do you do that? We should be taking away foreign funding. There's so much waste. You should not. You should, these, these, this money should be allocated from uh, you know, somewhere where it's already being spent and reallocated to this. In other words, he says foreign spending. We we're, we spend forty billion dollars. We have all this the, these foreign countries, foreign governments that the United States helps support and take away some of that funding. And specifically, he said we're going to borrow. He said we, we this, this virus came from China. Now we're going to borrow the money from China. We're going to increase our debt to China, increase our interest payments to China to pay for the virus that they themselves ca- uh, caused, that they themselves brought. To the United States. Um, now, look, he, he he's very consistent, Rand Paul, and you're going to say, well, he shouldn't politicize this, get the money for this, which is what I said about the Democrats with the uh, concern about profiting, you know, vaccine companies profiting, and you can make cases either way here, but Rand Paul, he always does this with the funding bills, and he's right, and the problem is they never listen to him. You know, they, 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 they argue with him when it's far less important uh, spending packages as this one, which is, of course, obviously extremely crucial. So this is just who he is and what he does. And he's really the lone voice who's always fighting, you know, saying that we should not be borrowing any more money. And he's right in almost all these cases. Elon Omar has accused Kevin McCarthy of racism because Kevin McCarthy referred to it as the Chinese coronavirus. This is so absurd. It's the Chinese coronavirus. It came from China. And she says, Quote, she put out on Twitter, quote, viruses don't have nationalities. This is racist. So Elon Omar, Elon Omar, the racist, the vicious monster anti-Semite racist, pro-terrorist. She says Kevin McCarthy is a racist because he called it the Chinese coronavirus. Kevin McCarthy, of course, is the House Minority Leader. Oh, that's going to do it for today. And we will see you next time.